SCP-6500 Inevitable Part 1 The SCP Foundation has a pretty simple goal to explain to people. There are anomalous things in the world, and they protect humanity by containing them, with some exceptions. It's an understandable concept, as a world with rampaging monsters is going to be a pretty different one compared to normal, so there needs to be a group that maintains that normalcy. SCP-6500 takes a look at that simple goal, however, and complicates things by introducing an anomaly that directly harms all other anomalies, but especially those that are in containment. The Foundation is in for quite a wild ride to deal with this one, so let's dive in. Rather than the file being locked behind a high-level clearance, it's instead available for all Foundation personnel to view, but it begins with a note that says that readers are compelled to consume the following sacrament. A button marked as Commence Ritual reveals a poem which reads, I am the blade, I am the shield, I am the arm that shall not yield. In tempest I stand fast, a legend, I will last, I will not fade. I am the wand, I am the flame, I am the rod for truths untamed. In knowledge I will trust, invoked I burn the dust, I will not fade. I am the knife, I am the shade, I am the hunter, not the prey. In whispers I have tread, by infamy I spread, I will not fade. I am the right, I am the scales, I am the patience which prevails. In honor I abide, with faith I turn the tide, I will not fade. We the sentries, we the wall, we the final card to fall. Through toil we shall gain, through blood we shall remain, we will not fail. With that, we're informed that we are now protected and we may proceed. Clearly, rituals are involved with the containment or understanding of 6500. The article itself opens with an image of SCP-179, a female humanoid entity located near our sun that warns the Foundation of any extraterrestrial threats. The caption for the image informs us that 179 is now inactive and unresponsive. SCP-6500 is described as a process of entropy that is exclusively targeting the anomalous. It primarily affects, but is not limited to, various forms of thaumaturgy, or magic, and is so far responsible for over 1,500 neutralizations of anomalous persons, items, areas, and phenomena over the past decade. This entropy takes on many forms, such as accelerated aging in organic anomalies, including those previously considered immortal or causing objects foreign to baseline reality to either fade into non-existence or suffer from violent structural collapse. While that's bad enough, the Foundation has determined through studying the anomaly that its effects are hastened 
by containment efforts. Without intervention, SCP-6500 will cause the complete neutralization of all known and undiscovered anomalies within a five-year period, changing the state of the universe and rendering the Foundation obsolete. The current containment procedures involve each site reviewing their containment records to determine which anomalies would cause negligible harm to humanity or widespread knowledge of the anomalous. Those are to be designated as non-disruptive anomalies, and their containment will either be discontinued or reduced to simple observation. Humanoid anomalies with a record for cooperative behavior are to be given tracking devices and released. Religious and mythical artifacts will be returned to their respective cultural lands or peoples, and animals and other organisms will be released into the custody of Wilson's Wildlife Solutions or similar groups. Tomes and grimoires will be turned over to Serpent's Hand operatives for a return to the Wanderer's Library, and an ambassador from the library has granted the Foundation temporary immunity for overdue items. Finally, anomalous locales are to be afforded the same level of agency granted to nexuses, like Three Portlands, with severely reduced policing from the Foundation. These actions have so far not been enough to stop SCP-6500, but have somewhat slowed the process. It's also been determined that all operations involving SCP-6500 must contain elements of esoterica, up to and including documentation, the code of which is to be lined with protective wards where possible. This explains the ritualistic poem at the start, and will explain a lot of the material in this article. We're also notified about Protocol Sixth Sun, which states that all special missions, known as paths, undertaken in the pursuit of counteracting or neutralizing SCP-6500 are to incorporate ritualistic aspects. We'll get to those paths soon enough. Now, you might think that getting rid of all anomalies in existence would really solve things for the Foundation and could be their end goal, but we're provided a note from 051 to dissuade us of that notion. It reads, Quiet days are upon us. One would be forgiven for viewing this as a desirable goal, to be free from the anomalous, to usher in a new age of reason, where there can exist nothing outside our realm of understanding, a world where we would not have to watch our brethren die in the dark, unaccomplished and forgotten. One would be forgiven for wanting to go home to their family, to look them in the eye and assure them that everything is going to be okay, that there is nothing left to go bump in the night. One would be forgiven. Since our inception, countless generations of noble men and women have dedicated their lives to the suppression of that which eludes understanding. They have stood stalwart on the precipice of the unknown, staring defiantly into the abyss. They mocked its gaze. Why, then, should we not honor their tradition? Why spurn their sacrifice? Why should we move to proliferate that which we've so stubbornly locked away? SCP-6500 represents the end of magic, the end of stories and of dreams, the utter desolation of countless sapient, feeling lives, 
the destruction of communities, the fracturing of whole cultures and religions. It is an unnatural and intolerable eradication of untold worlds. It is condemnation, unforgiving in its totality and unflinching in its march towards oblivion. To allow for it to continue on its course is to fail in our mission to protect. To cede to its influence would be to permit it to rob our world of wonder. To stand by would be tantamount to genocide. And that, that cannot be forgiven. So, in other words, the Foundation is going to fight to protect normalcy because the existence of anomalies is normal. To an extent. SCP-6500 is a relatively recent development, but the possibility of such a phenomena occurring has been brought up multiple times in the past by various groups. Within the Wanderer's Library, it was called Chipactli's Feast, or simply the Impasse, an event which was said to herald the final occult war. The earliest known reference to SCP-6500 was recorded by an unknown scholar in a mythicized retelling of Grand Karsist Ion's felling of the Davite city of Cursed, as part of a collection of Sarkic scripture. It reads, Bellow not jubilant obscenities, suffer no pride in these dealings. The sorcerer king turned not towards his reveling clavigar, he spoke instead into the distance, as if beseeching creation itself. Ours is a somber crusade. Holds pity for those who would so domineer us, even as their blades seek your throat, for they know not the grand nature of being. To this, Orok questioned, Surely as one who has endured the bondage of the Pajiwima, you should be first to celebrate our retribution. Though the Sorcerer King had his eyes set upon the dying embers of the fortress city, Orok felt his piercing gaze all the same. The enemy would see to snuff out all that is not within their dominion. To starve the Vazjuma is to starve themselves. Ion turned to regard his disciples, enraptured by his word. A single tear escaped their liberator as he implored them. There will be no awakening for the slumbering devourer. There would only be night and the void. Much later, SCP-6500 was hypothesized to exist by one of the founding members of the Foundation, an individual known as O5-0. Little information exists about this individual, and what does is largely contradictory. Apparently they refused to actually hold a position on the Overseer Council, so they were given the moniker of O5-0 by the Overseers, as a bit of a mocking title. We're given three separate accounts from various sources that describe the individual. The first, from the personal journal of the original O5-4, describes them as a middle-aged Caucasian man hailing from an uncertain Nordic country named Norris Arclay. He's said to be an aloof collector of curios with an air of affluence about him, all in tattered cloth ill-equipped to conceal his manhood. 
He's compared to the Greek philosopher Diogenes, known for his eccentric behavior, such as sleeping in a large ceramic jar in the marketplace. 054 characterizes him as a madman that continually critiqued the overseer's decisions while distancing himself from a position of power. 054 does begrudgingly compliment him though due to an incident in which he devised a containment procedure for a self-replicating anomaly that had already killed two Foundation members. He eventually split from the Foundation though, to which 054 wrote that they are better off without him, even if he did take his personal collection of artifacts with him like a petulant child. The second account, on the other hand, from the records of the Global Occult Coalition, comes from a series of letters written by a member of the Bavarian Illuminati that had been tasked with spying on the Foundation during their early days. The spy describes 050 as a young, olive-skinned woman named Nur, who holds no office, but her words hold weight. She is described as an accomplished botanist, seeking to explain the existence of the anomalous and their place in the natural order. Not much attention was paid to Nur over the years compared to the actual council members, but eventually she left the foundation. The spy writes that he had always felt an unnerving sense of unease and danger while observing the council, which he had assumed to be due to the fact that he was spying on a dangerous group. But as soon as Nur left, so too did that loathsome pressure. He believes that he made a grave mistake. The third account comes from the founding chair of the Foundation's Ethics Committee, who describes their early actions within the Foundation and their stringent supervision by an honorary overseer. They would communicate with the chair exclusively by telephone and are described as an intelligent and fearsome advocate for ethical considerations regarding anomalous subjects. The chair wrote that with O50's guidance, necessary resources for humanoid containment has lessened by 20%. These communications grew less frequent, however, as the ethics committee became a self-governing body. In the months following their last communication, the chair reported the arrest and trial of O50, but they were unable to be convicted since they held no formal position within the foundation, so they were instead exiled via forced retirement. In response, the Ethics Committee Chair resigned, writing that the administration has made clear its distaste for the ethical concerns of the anomalous, and they exiled the woman to whom they owe their career. Each account offers some radically different views of O50, but the similarity between each is that they specifically chose not to be part of the Council, and eventually left the Foundation due to ideological differences. The Council did not believe SCP-6500 to be a possibility, and so they dismissed O50's proposal to limit the Foundation's size and scope to combat it. O50's quarters were searched after they left, with surviving personnel able to recover a number of notes, suggesting that there was some sort of booby trap left behind. These several dozen notes discussed four anomalous artifacts, 
and throughout they are referenced either in relation to other anomalies or in their relation to 6500. The retrieval of these items has been deemed paramount to continued operations. This leads into the bulk of the article, the four artifacts and the four paths that lead to them. I mentioned these paths before, as special missions undertaken to counteract SCP-6500, and that everything involved with SCP-6500 needs to involve ritualistic elements. Initiating Protocol Sixth Sun tells us that a thaumatonarrative engine has been engaged, combining both magic and narratives, and provides us with the four paths, the path of the warrior, the mage, the cleric, and the thief. Each one offers a different artifact that could be used to stop SCP-6500 entirely, and we'll have to read through each one to understand how. The first, the Path of the Warrior, details a legendary blade known as the Leading Edge that is woven into the pataphysical folds of reality, with its wielder embodying the spirit of the hero. The nature of this weapon would allow for SCP-6500 to be overcome with the resolution of a grand quest. The Warrior Path is titled Death and the Authors and begins in Sloth's Pit, Wisconsin, a small town and nexus of anomalous activity. A woman named Delfina Ibanez is at a lecture titled Applied Apocalyptic Pataphysics, or Telling Tales at the End of Everything, and she tells the lecturer that she hates stories. The lecturer responds that nobody hates stories, so she corrects herself to say that she hates fiction. The question he asked her as she showed up late was what her favorite story was. She says that she's late because she hates fiction, so she despises pataphysics, but he insists that she tell him her favorite story. After pondering for a moment, she replies, The Right Stuff, a 1983 film about the United States' first manned spaceflight. Afterwards, a friend of Ibanez's named Okori says that she hates magic, comparing it to someone learning to hate air if they found themselves on the moon. She's a thaumaturge, and since the start of the impasse, SCP-6500, she's woken up every day feeling like she just gave a pint of blood. The lecturer suggests she head to the lab of their resident mage, as he might have something that would help, to which Ibanez shrugs and calls him Dr. Whatever, which he corrects as Placeholder McDoctorate. The three of them head over to the lab, where Okori finds some syringes which help, and Ibanez leaves her to let her get some rest. She and Placeholder continue on, with him explaining how rare it is for the O5s to declassify two 001 proposals. He had been lecturing on these two proposals, Swans, which says that their lives are controlled by a bunch of horror writers, and Pikmins, which says that the very concept of narrative is sapient. He claims that the O5s wouldn't have let him lecture about them and freak everyone out if there wasn't a reason. Ibanez replies that she didn't say there wasn't a reason, 
just that the reason was stupid. Placeholder defends himself though, stating that their existence is defined by a network of anomalous systems, and they live in an anomalous ecosystem. Something is killing off the genetic diversity of that system, but not evenly. As one layer of anomalies contracts, another expands to fill the gap, with magic all but drained out of Sloth's pit, replaced by the power of fiction. Ibanez isn't convinced though with the idea of replacing actual magic with stories, but Placeholder says that stories are actual magic. In the end though, it doesn't matter to her, as she says her job is to shut magic down, and she ends stories. Later, she wakes to the sound of water, on wood, like waves, and she becomes aware of a creeping moisture on the back of her jumpsuit. Her first thought was that she's never peed the bed before, but her second thought was that she's never gone to bed on grass before. This got her to her feet, standing up into the ice-cold air and looking out on a riverbank stretching to infinity in two directions. The water was pitch black and was clapping against the sides of a wood rowboat. On the rowboat was a heavy traveling cloak with a battered fedora perched precariously on top, which moved as she approached. She greeted it, causing it to raise a sleeve and point weakly down the river. Acknowledging that this was clearly a dream, she climbed into the rowboat and began working the oars to row down the river. After what felt like an eternity of rowing along with the ferryman, she finally looked over her shoulder and saw a city. Suddenly, she was standing in the city, with stone walls looming around her and solid cobbles beneath her feet. She then hears a thin, weak voice say, I wasn't sure you would hear me. Rather than replying, she begins to walk forward, at which point the voice says that it brings her hope in the final hour. She pauses and asks who the voice is, not wanting any cryptic dream BS. The voice replies that their time is nearly spent. Suddenly, Ibanez is climbing the steps of a church, surrounded by shadowy figures, which wink out one by one as she passes. The steps end at a smooth stone platform, where a white robe lays. The voice tells her to come to them, and begin. The breeze turns into a gale, causing Ibanez to fall to her knees with her hands over her ears, and the robe blows aside to reveal something. Later that day, Okori tells her it was a vision, while Placeholder says it was a story seed. Ibanez just says that it was a dream. Okori is sure that it was a vision though, mentioning SCP-5923, a city in Turkey that used to send people dreams to beg them to come home to it. The Foundation started funneling tourists there in the 90s, and they haven't heard a peep since. The details all line up, with a river, a boat, a boatman, mists, a church, and a figure in white. 
Okori and Placeholder say that 5923 wants something from her, since it's probably dying and hopes that she can help. Ibanez, however, says that it maybe thinks that it can help them, as it told her that she could restore the balance, and showed her a sword, claiming that it was the key. Placeholder says that they should play by the rules, as anything done to counteract 6500 has to be ritualistic, so he tells Ibanez to say that she doesn't want to go to Turkey. Ibanez doesn't really want to go to Turkey at all, so she says so. Now that she's refused the call, they can proceed, with Placeholder mentioning vision quest rules. Okori says it's not a vision quest if the vision comes first, instead it's just a straight up quest. They end up in the village in Turkey, where SCP-5923 is based, only to find the village completely still, with all of the people standing motionless. The ten-man MTF they brought with begin to go through the village and sit the villagers down to prevent injuries, while Okori takes her third injection of the day to stave off her malaise. She explains that the village mirrors the vitality of its citizens, but now it seems to be feeding off of them in order to survive. Suddenly, the ground shakes beneath them and the street begins to curl over the three of them like a tidal wave, causing them to fall into a sheer black expanse. When they stop, the landscape has changed, with them now in the basin of a dry fountain, and the church from Ibanez's dream towering in front of them. The voice from her dream calls out, telling them to hurry and find it. Ibanez tells the others that it's speaking to her, telling her to find the sword. Okori points to a portico at the base of the church stairs, saying that there isn't much magic left here, but it's in the library. The three head into the modest library, with the MTF nowhere in sight. There's only one patron inside, slumped over a table with his face in a book, and the librarian is staring into her computer screen. The third occupant of the room is a white-robed, hooded figure holding a suspiciously shiny sword, and it begs them to take it. Ibanez warily approaches with her hand on her holstered gun, and the figure says that the end of the unknown is the end of all stories. The end of all stories is the end of all change. The figure then slips away, leaving behind an identical white marble statue, and the final words of, The end of change is the end of everything. Ibanez grabs a nearby chair and uses it to reach up and pull the sword away from the statue. It's a short sword, less than three feet long with a circular crossguard and a polished oak pommel. There was writing on the crossguard, but she can't read the unfamiliar lettering and it makes her eyes hurt. She asks what she should do now, such as sticking the sword into something. Placeholder says that a dragon would be the obvious choice. Okori suddenly cocks her head to one side and then collapses to the floor, breathing heavily. As the others rush to her side, 
She says that there's a way in here, a portal. She can feel it, but she doesn't know the key to opening it. The voice has gone now, so there's no more help there, and Okori can't read the writing on the sword either, but she says that someone in the serpent's hand could. Normally the foundation doesn't get along great with the hand, but since the hand doesn't want magic to die any more than they do, the circumstances have changed. After another injection, Ibanez asks Okori where the way is, to which Okori knocks on some wood near her. This causes a distinct clicking sound to come from within the desk. The keys to ways, known as knocks, are not normally so literal, but since magic is breaking down, everything is working a bit differently. Placeholder suggests that this was simply Okori's role in the narrative. On the other side of the counter is an open cabinet door at knee level, which contains a portal to another location. Stepping through the portal, they end up in a location that is both a clearing filled with blue grass as well as an ornate library, a section of the Wanderer's Library. They feel a warm breeze, smell the scent of ancient paper, and hear the sounds of distant fighting. Unfortunately, Okori can no longer stand due to the effects of SCP-6500 on her, so Ibanez carries her as the three pass through the library. They come across a number of anomalous entities, including an animate skeleton pressing its finger bones into a two-meter blob composed entirely of eyes while screaming Praxis over and over again, and some sort of immense serpent dinosaur creature which they immediately ran away from. They then encounter some sort of swollen spider thing which leaps towards them, resulting in Ibanez swiftly drawing her handgun and terminating it mid-leap. She puts Okori down afterwards, who says that she's feeling different now, although she doesn't know if she'd say better. Another creature leaps at them, and Ibanez slaps it away with the flat of the sword, before shooting it as well. They then see an army of similar spider creatures at the end of the hallway, all nodding together to bar their passage. The ball of flesh is suddenly flung aside, however, and scattered across the stacks of books by a tremendous millipede, larger than a convoy of buses end to end. The millipede proceeded to suck up all of the spider creatures into its mouth, and as the last one went in, the millipede's belly turned scarlet, the sound of boiling flesh filled the air, and it belched a thin plume of flame. It then slammed back down while staring at the three humans. Ibanez asks Placeholder if this counts as a dragon. The creature rears up again while shouting that jailers are not welcome in its library, but then its legs give out underneath it and it crashes to the floor. Ibanez says that she's not here to jail anything, but instead is here for a single piece of information and they'll want to help her find it. The millipede climbs back to its feet and says that it's not a docent, and it should tear her apart for suggesting it. It doesn't trust her kind, 
and doesn't abide thieves and book burners. Ibanez angrily kicks a spider thing corpse and asks if it would rather abide spiders as a spider abider. This causes the millipede to laugh and declares itself as the eighth archivist, although its friends call it the rounderpede. Ibanez lowers her sword and asks why the library's on fire, metaphorically speaking, but the archivist says it's not a metaphor. It steps aside to reveal the grand hall of the library, a tremendously large open space filled with desks, chairs, and lanterns, along with an endless web of crawling, fleshy red spiders. Ibanez then asks why there's an arachno-brain forming in their lobby. The millipede says that the old magic is dying, causing portals to be open that they cannot shut. Portals that allow things to come through that have been waiting. Things such as former patrons that have been ejected for various reasons, including theft, destruction of library property, and consumption of other patrons, as well as eldritch monstrosities. The Grand Hall is an anomaly itself that expands to suit its contents, which is normally very convenient, but not so much right now. The eldritch monstrosity that the spiders are part of is known as the half-wit brain of Uberoth, the anathema to knowledge, Uberoth the empty, Uberoth the senseless web, and Uberoth the maw of trackless midnights. Ibanez remarks that that's a dude's name, a commissioner of baseball in the 80s named Peter Uberoth. Placeholder says that he doesn't think this is him. Ibanez proceeds to climb onto the millipede's back, who then starts to climb up the nearest support column to reach the ceiling where the mass was gathering. She yells back at the other two to hide. Ibanez proceeds to climb up the millipede as it snatches both falling spiders and books out of the air. The spiders it either rips apart or swallows whole, while it grabs the books and holds them against its stomach. One book it swallows, explaining that it has separate tracks, and some of its fluids are excellent for conservation. The spiders begin to attack Ibanez as well, forcing her to fend them off with the sword as she makes her way to the archivist's head. The spiders really begin to swarm the two at this point, as the archivist rushes through the mass spreading across the ceiling. Ibanez continues to cut through as many as she can with the sword, beginning to laugh as she does so. She holds the sword up as the archivist runs across the organic mass, tearing through it while blood rains down. The archivist then lets out a belch of fire, which collides with the sword, causing it to begin to gleam with a blinding white light. Ibanez swings the sword around in a wide arc, sending a firestorm twirling through the Grand Hall, burning the entire canopy of arachnids. They continue to slaughter the remaining spiders that are falling to the floor, and eventually make it back to the ground level, Ibanez swinging off of one of the archivist's legs and landing directly onto the last spider, which blew apart like a jelly donut. 
Okari and Placeholder stare at the blood-drenched Ibanez, who merely grins and bellows out that she loves stories, before doubling over with laughter. Afterwards, Ibanez shows the sword to the archivist to see if it could read the writing on it. The archivist recoils, saying that it wouldn't speak that tongue even if it could, and no one here can help her, so she'll have to go down to the source. After telling them where the source is, Placeholder says that they shouldn't go there, but Okori says that they have to, as that's where this story ends. She assumes that there's a portal that they can use, but the archivist says it's not a way, but a wound, an infected scar from an unwise alliance long broken. It lies beyond the sevenfold portal, which will shut behind them when they enter. This connection was not made willingly, and they would sever it if they could. Placeholder asks why the library is dying if it's connected to all universes, not just the one where SCP-6500 is killing anomalies. The archivist says that the cause must also be a multiversal constant, or close enough to one, and personally it blames the Foundation. It won't provide them any more help, as this may soon be the last bastion of magic in all creation. Ibanez asks it to show them where the portal is, but it shakes its head, saying that it need only curse them to find it themselves. It then lets out a chant, saying, I hie thee now to halls unkind, where to your sorrow you shall find, in grimoires black on ebon shelves, the Stygian pits within yourselves. It then apologizes, as Okori and Placeholder immediately begin walking away, and Ibanez briefly resists the sudden force impelling her to follow. She asks the archivist what will happen if it's right, and they fail, leaving the library as the only anomalous thing in all of existence. The archivist says that the library will be enough, and Ibanez turns to join the others. The Force proceeded to pull them through the library, guiding them precisely where they needed to go, until they ended up in front of a jet-black vault door. Upon opening it, time stood still for a moment, and they eventually passed through into a diminished reflection of the Grand Hall, blackened and pitted with age, fire, and rot. A beam of pure dark light shone down from the ceiling, as a viscous black fluid ran from the empty shelves into an apparently bottomless pit in the center. Ibanez steps up to the edge of the pit, remarking that this is a metaphor for the descent into madness, but Placeholder says it's a metaphor for progression, transition, and the acquisition of deeper knowledge. Okari says it's just a hole, and steps into the pit falling into nothingness, soon joined by the other two as the door behind them closes. After free-falling through darkness, they end up back on solid ground, still unable to see anything. They realize that they're now wearing masks made of white porcelain for some reason, 
which they peel off. They're blinded momentarily by the light coming from the sword, which Okori exclaims is hemorrhaging magic, growing more powerful. She says that nothing is growing more powerful anymore, as everything is failing. SCP-2264, the portal to Alagata, won't open, and SCP-005 and SCP-963 are flat out dead, the skeleton key and Dr. Bright's amulet, respectively. Placeholder suggests that maybe that's why the Magic City wanted them to have it, as it could be part of the solution. They look around to find themselves in a corridor of cramped, black bookshelves stretching away to near infinity, making Ibanez almost able to sense the curvature of the earth in their immensity. The three all suddenly shudder in unison though, feeling a palpable sense that the books and shelves are wrong in some way. Ibanez tells the others that they need to move, but a voice interjects asking if they've come to steal secrets, comparing them to rats coming to the poison. The voice is strong and confident, unlike the voice from Ibanez's dream. Ibanez immediately begins moving forward while the others stay still. The voice asks if they seek to know them, if they seek to know themselves, or if they seek fouler obscenities still. Okori, from far behind Ibanez, asks if she's alright, while the voice continues on, saying that she has come to their dwelling place, the terminatus of all which is beautiful and ruined, Black Alagada, and she is welcome here. The shelves continue to grow upwards and around her until there are no shelves, as Ibanez stops walking and closes her eyes. The voice beckons her to come to it, and end, but she merely says that this doesn't end before suddenly waking up. Afterwards, the four of them were standing in a pool of tears, with books in the water. The voice is interjecting in the description, as Ibanez kneels down and runs her fingers through the liquid. She yells for the voice to stop, causing her three companions to recoil. One of them says that here is her knowledge, and she should drown in it. Ibanez scoops up one of the books and tries to read the text on the cover. The voice interjects, though, describing it as what remains when names die, and an imprimatur of the madness within all of us. After taking a deep breath and closing her eyes, she reads the title as Spoliation. She drops the book and the water swallows it again, so she reaches for some more, titled Rack and Roses, and The Auspices of Debauchery. The words are all written in the Alagadan script, but it translates itself while within the city. This means that the voice was right, they are somewhere in Alagada, the home of the Hanged King. The four of them stand around the sword, and Ibanez reads aloud the text on it. I will not fade. One of her companions says, We'll see about that. At which point Ibanez realizes she didn't have three companions, 
and the fourth entity attacks her. The entity turns out to be the Ambassador of Alagata, an extremely powerful agent of the Hanged King. It attacks Ibanez with its sharp nails, and she stumbles backwards into the water. It cackles that it knows her, and she's no hero. As she pulls herself out of the water, she's suddenly in one of the SCP sites, and a hundred bandaged specters are walking towards her. Also, the sword she had been carrying was now a sleek and shining high-tech rifle. The nearest specter speaks, calling her a murderer, to which she responds by shooting it. At the moment of impact, it transforms into a terrified woman in a security uniform, but the gunfire causes her to spin away with both arms severed at the shoulders. Another calls her a coward, and Ibanez shoots it as well, turning the woman it became into a red mist. The rest just call her Jailer as she continues to fire, until one hand manages to reach out and press her head down into the blood, saying that she is no savior. When she brings her head back up while coughing and sobbing, she finds herself in a stagnant pool of swamp water, with planes roaring overhead whilst firing on a village. Men and women in the village are wearing MTF outfits and are trying to assemble an anti-aircraft gun. She's now carrying a broken torch, which still lit the water around her, which was expanding with a red color. Near her, a small girl lay face down with a single clean wound in the back of her skull. Ibanez reaches down and turns over the corpse, revealing it to be her sister's. She tries to say that this isn't real, but her voice is replaced with the ambassador's, who reaches up and wraps its talons around her throat. She begins to hammer away at the ambassador with her broken torch, screaming that this is all a dream, but it says that dreams are more real than all of the magic in Alagata today. The bandages that the ambassador was wearing fall away to reveal a form of sheer night which envelops her. She feels her grip loosen on the torch, or the gun, or the sword, and the ambassador drags her down into the water. While underneath, she clears her mind and focuses on the fountain in the Turkish village where she lost her MTF team. Razor-sharp nails begin to dig into her scalp as the ambassador tells her that she is no leader. She emerges in the moonlit Turkish village that started all this, with the ambassador standing on the steps of the church nearby. It tells her that it could take her apart with a whisper, but it's far more amusing if she does it herself. It's interrupted, however, when she gives the command to fire, and ten MTF members open fire on it, tearing it to shreds. Suddenly, she's back in the pool of knowledge, where she hands off the sword to Okori and proceeds to snap the ambassador's neck. She then drags herself out of the water and takes the sword back, which is glowing like a beacon. The three continue to walk through Alagata as Placeholder asks what exactly that thing was. Okari explains that 
it was the ambassador of Alagada, one of the most powerful sorcerers to ever walk the earth. It must have been dead to begin with, however, as it could have disassembled them at the atomic level without batting an eye under normal circumstances. Placeholder asks if that was the villain they came here for, since it was an ambassador to the Hanged King. Okari winces and tells him not to say that name out loud, and it's complicated on whether or not it serves the Hanged King. He pulls out his narrative fluctuation detector and says that the Big Bad's second-in-command in stories is referred to as a dragon. Ibanez pulled a sword out of a statue, saved a sovereign state, and fought and maybe slew a dragon. That means that they'll have to start winding this quest down, otherwise they might draw the authors down to their level and get trapped in an eternally escalating narrative. As for why the sword has been growing brighter and more powerful, it seems to be mirroring the strength of Ibanez's heroism, the same way the Turkish village mirrors the contentment of the tourists. They went to Alagada from Turkey by way of the Wanderer's Library, not to read an important inscription, but because of the journey itself. The sword triggered the quest, and the quest triggered the sword through Ibanez's sequence of strength feats. It's been ages since someone shifted the balance of power in Alagada, since jailers walked freely in the Wanderer's Library, since SCP-5923 spoke, and since Okori's veins felt so full of fire. The sword is reflecting what's inside of Ibanez, stirring up stories and bringing life to dead and dying places. There could be enough raw change built up in the sword to reverse the impasse entirely. Finally, the three of them come to the Hall of the Hanged King, dominated by a throne sculpted with scenes and figures which crawled beneath their eyes like the memory of worms in the grave. It was littered with nasty-looking spikes, broken links of black metal, and frayed lengths of black rope, with a single chain swaying from the ceiling. The throne itself, however, is empty. This was a problem, according to Okori, as the Hanged King was now free, and she thinks that they freed him. If he gets his hand on the sword, it would be worse than the impasse, and the only way out of Alagada is through a doorway somewhere. The three begin to cautiously move through the hall in search of a door that would lead home, noting the shadows in the area didn't change based on their torch. They soon come across a door marked as Aditum, the home of the Sarkites, to which Okori wordlessly declines to open. As they continue to move, they note an unmoving gloom on the stairs leading up to the city, when suddenly the gloom moves. Okori stops, reaches into a leather pouch, and pulls out some dust, clapping her hands together. She then tells the other two goodbye, as she begins to trace lines in the dust on her hands. Ibanez tries to stop her, but she shoves her backwards with tears in her eyes, telling the two of them that they need to go. 
She moves to draw lines in the floor as the gloom billows up behind her. The Hanged King. A god-shaped hole. As Ibanez raises the sword, Okori finishes the spell, which causes a wall of fire to bisect the room and separate her from the other two. Ibanez still lingered nearby, so Okori sent her flying backwards with another spell, and Placeholder continued to pull her back. Okori was ultimately forced by the Hanged King through a door marked with three crescent moons, Corbinic. Ibanez, meanwhile, was pulled through another door by Placeholder, marked as Never Meant. On the other side, Ibanez insisted that they go back, but Placeholder replies that they can't, as they need to get her and the sword out of here, since she is the protagonist and they are merely secondary characters. He knows how to get them out, since the Nevermint is an interdimensional void between spaces, and with the collapse of magic, it should be a realm of pure pataphysics. He had discussed this possibility with Okori before they left for Turkey, that they might get trapped in a narrative loop, at which point they would have to push things over the edge meaning they'd check off another narrative cliché to reel the authors in. A grand gesture. A sacrifice. Ibanez worries for a moment that she might drive the sword through Placeholder's heart, but then her heart leapt into her throat and a blinding light burst from the blade. She holds it up beneath his nose and says, It's not a sacrifice. It's a sequel hook. The two continue to move through the Never Meant, passing through a tunnel, a starlit gallery, a labyrinth of stinging nettles, a fence-lined street, an empty expanse. Placeholder urges her on, saying that they're breaking through the lairs, and eventually Ibanez feels that they're being observed from beyond the veil. Placeholder suddenly stops, saying that he never told her how he got his name, He got something's attention, and it cursed him. They then find themselves pinned against a black velvet curtain, like butterflies on a specimen board, with a metaphysical mass looming over them. Placeholder says that they've learned a thing or two about curses themselves, in the interim. A howl of static is then heard, a shattering of chains, a scream from beyond the fourth wall and they find themselves in the church, back in Turkey. A white-robed figure is floating above the pulpit, and says that the end of the end is nigh. Ibanez asks Placeholder what that thing was when the author came for them. He says that it was a safeguard, a last resort against the writers that they never thought they'd need to use. He had deployed it into the Noosphere before they left, and didn't tell anyone because otherwise, it wouldn't have been a deus ex machina. They have to follow the rules, of course. Ibanez just shakes her head and says that the rules follow her, starting right now. With that, the path of the warrior is finished. The after-action report explains that this all occurred during the early days of the SCP-6500 crisis, 
and resulted in the acquisition of the Leading Edge, an artifact capable of reflecting the inner strength of its bearer into thaumaturgical and narrative energy, revitalizing decayed anomalous landscapes and living creatures and restoring momentum to their stories. Sadly, the chief of applied occultism at Site-43, Dr. Udo Okori, was lost during the operation and his presumed KIA. Afterwards, Ibanez organized a unique MTF made up of individuals with exceptional protagonistic potential, as identified by Placeholder, in order to travel to each Foundation site and a variety of Foundation-friendly anomalous locations to repair the damage done by 6500. They managed to stop 5923 from subsisting on the psychic energy of its denizens, stir SCP-179 back to life, who now points a single finger at Earth, and restore contact with Korbenik. Some thaumaturges within the Serpent's Hand have resumed their war of attrition against the Foundation, now that SCP-6500 isn't as much of a threat, and a single instance of SCP-1762, the Paper Dragons, has been spotted in the wild. The sword has been unable to restore anomalies that have completely ceased to be anomalous, however. The MTF has also been prohibited from re-entering the Wanderer's Library, and no further attempts have been made to return to Aligata. After some time, Ibanez requested a temporary leave of absence to go visit Okori's parents, who are stationed at another site. They reported nothing unusual with her activities during the visit, but afterwards, on her return to London, she was seen entering the Tower of London, heavily armed. This is the location of SCP-2264, an entrance to Aligata, and she disappeared without a trace. There are three more paths to go before continuing into the SCP-6500 file, each quite different than the last. Truth be told, reading all of the paths is not strictly required to understand SCP-6500 in its entirety, but we'll be going through all of them to appreciate the stories they tell. Ibanez proved one way of solving this problem through the path of becoming a warrior, but there are other ways, as we'll soon see. <laughs>